Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. When Louis came home to the flat, he hung up his coat and his hat. He gazed all around, but no wifey he found. So he said, where can Flossie be at? A note on the table he spied. He read it just once, then he cried. It ran, Louis dear, it's too slow for me here. So I think I will go for a ride. Meet me in St. Louis, Louis. Meet me at the fair. Don't tell me the lights are shining any place but Oh, I don't know that there's even anybody left in St. Louis dancing the hoochie-coochie. I think they're all gone. They're all on their private planes flying home having cocktails. I guess that was last night that that happened. All right. So if you're listening now and you watched the debate last night and then you went through the the, the Access Hollywood tape fiasco before that and you're just in a fetal position and you just don't want to talk about this stuff anymore, too bad. Cowboy up. This is your democracy. You're just going to I actually know people who just are dropping out now. They like can't watch the debates. They can't watch coverage. Um, I had house guests last weekend. I had a clip of uh, Rudy Giuliani and Jake Tapper battling and like the, the husband got up and ran out of the room. He couldn't be in the room with it. So uh, we, we don't approve of that kind of avoidance here at the Colin McEnroe show. You just have to. You just have to do it. You have to put your goggles on and dive in. All right. So in a little bit, a little while uh, after this excellent first segment, well, we're going to talk to David Yaloff, who's a professor uh, and department head, head of political science at UConn. He's uh, something of an expert in the history and tradition of debates. He's also a constitutional scholar. So we might also we're going to talk to him about debates, uh, but we're also going to talk to him about um uh, we'll take advantage of his being here to talk about the very brief conversation about the Supreme Court last night. Um, very brief conversation about the Supreme Court. Uh, and uh, at the end of the show, our own Jonathan McNichol uh, is going to tell you what it's like to be at one of these debates. Uh, we sent him out to Hofstra. Uh, he didn't really have that good a time, but uh, we got something out of it anyway, which is uh, a, an audio essay that I think you're going to find a lot of fun. Uh, meanwhile, right now, we're very excited to have back with us uh, one of our favorite uh, political analysts, one of, our, one of our favorite guys who's kind of covering this race. We have a lot of people from the Washington Post on the show on Mondays. Uh, we've had uh, Chris Salizzo. We've had David Farenthold. But uh, Phil Bump, I think we've had more often than anyone else. And I really like this Washington Post. I had never actually heard of it before this campaign. But um, but it's uh, it's an excellent newspaper. Uh, so Phil Bump's been writing about politics uh, for The Fix at the Washington Post. Uh, I don't know what has actually done to his psyche to uh, be this close to the toxic materials of this campaign, but we'll find out how he's doing right now. Um, so Phil Bump, maybe we can, uh, let's start with the most present current thing, and then we can kind of work backwards. Sure. Um, so the, I think the most present current thing probably is that Paul Ryan has announced that he is no longer going to defend Donald Trump, that he is going to devote all of his energies to shoring up the Republican majority uh, in the House and, and maybe Congress at large. Um, this this does seem kind of significant. I mean, there have been so many significant things over the last uh, 48 to 92 hours. But this is big, a big part of the march of the penguins away from Donald Trump, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that it, one of the things that's worth bearing in mind is that this is actually the Paul Ryan thing is already an hour and a half old. So, of course, something more <laughs> pressing has already emerged, which oh. is a new poll, which I think helps explain why Paul Ryan might be taking that that stance. So Paul Ryan, yes, he, the, you know, over the weekend in the wake of this this tape that we uh, that the Post first reported on. All sorts of Republicans were bailing on Donald Trump for a variety of reasons, some of them just because they'd been looking for an opportunity to do so. You know, I don't think it's terribly new that Paul Ryan uh, is not super enthusiastic about getting on the stump for Donald Trump. But a new NBC Washington Wall Street Journal poll that just came out, which is the first one conducted after uh, all of the research or after all of the, all of the uh, the uh, the hot mic stuff came out shows that a huge shift away from Donald Trump and, importantly for Paul Ryan, a four-point swing towards the Democrats just on the generic congressional ballot, mm -hmm. uh, which is, of course, the thing that Paul Ryan is most concerned about. I, I think that it's obviously that. I didn't even know about that poll, but uh, that is how fast things do move. I think it's also, it may also be at a personal level, you know, he had that experience in Wisconsin on Saturday, was it? Where, yeah, Saturday. Right. So he, it's called the Fall Fair or something like that. He came out, it was going to be a scheduled appearance with Trump, then it was going to be with Pence, then it wasn't going to be with Pence. But when he came out and, and talked about what he called the elephant in the room, you know, a lot of Trump supporters there, the hardcore, were there just booing the crap out of him. And I right. think at some point, you know, at a personal level, I mean, I'm sure he looks at numbers and he's a very smart and, and calculating guy. But I think also he's thinking, well, these people are never going to accept any kind of moderating statement that I make. They'll, they won't accept anything but 100 percent Kool-Aid. So what's the point of appeasing any of these people? Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, you know, the the, the job of being Speaker of the House, um, leading a Republican caucus, you know, we know that it's tricky for precisely the reasons that you saw erupt over the weekend, which is that there is this part of the Republican base that, as it turns out, is very big and votes a lot, uh, which is why Donald Trump is the nominee, but who reject traditional Republican politics. Paul Ryan stepped in once John Boehner was like, the hell with this, and, you know, moved back to Cincinnati. Paul Ryan stepped in and, you know, and took the reins here, uh, and he had done a decent job of navigating the tension between the two parts of the Republican Party, but then Trump just ripped that, that all open. And so Paul Ryan had tried to go through this thing. Yes, I'll endorse Donald Trump. No, I'm not and he's super fervent about it. Uh, and then, you know, this this whole hot mic thing sort of forced his hand. He couldn't stand there with Donald Trump. I think he knows now that Donald Trump is almost certainly going to lose, is almost certainly going to be a disaster for the Republican Party. And, yeah, but he still has to stand there and deal with the people shouting at him just as, you know, on the House floor or, you know, in the House Republican caucus, he's going to have to deal with members of, of his congressional caucus yelling at him as well. So the other thing that we are, we've been seeing, and I know you've been kind of tracking this over the last 12 or so hours, is obviously, you know, there's everybody saw last night's debate a little bit differently. But you've been looking at sort of the the Breitbartiest uh, response, I think, uh, to right. use uh, your coinage. Tell us about the Breitbartiest response to the debate. So one of the things that I thought was remarkable about the debate was that it was Donald Trump was making all the arguments he always makes at all of his rallies, right? I mean, like, if you've paid attention to more than one of his rallies over the course of the past six months or so, you heard every argument he made. Hillary Clinton is the original birther. Uh, you know, she should be in jail. I mean, all of these things are things that he says commonly. But we sort of expect it at the rallies, and we don't expect it uh, at the debate. And I don't know why we didn't expect it at the debate. In retrospect, it seems like obvious that, of course, he should bring all this stuff out and say it to Hillary Clinton's face, uh, except for the fact that he seemed sort of timid in the first debate. 
But that's what he did. And so he he unleashed all of these, you know, really uh, sort of out there conspiracy theories and, and, and arguments, uh, many of which have no validation. And, and he didn't really provide much context to it. So it must have been confusing to a lot of people. Uh, but that's, you know, what he spent the first probably half hour of the debate doing was just, you know, laying into these these arguments that that, you know, are basically baseless. And Hillary Clinton just sat there and laughed, which I think is probably all you really can do. Uh, but what it shows is that he has always believed that if he just goes out there and is aggressive and is, you know, is a quote unquote truth teller, which of course is inaccurate, but that's why people love him. That's why he did so well in the primaries and that can, that can lead him to victory in the general election. And it's true. It did do him well. And it's true. That is why he won in the primaries and it's absolutely incorrect that it'll help him in the general. Right. So there, Bill Bradley uh, famously wrote a book more about his basketball career called A Sense of Where You Are. Uh, and, and this seems to be something that Donald Trump didn't have last night. In other words, there's things that you can say that don't really stand up very well to scrutiny. Uh, you know, things that you can say, uh, you can claim, as you pointed out, that, that, he, that he did last night, that, that you know, Hillary Clinton uh, published a picture of Barack Obama in some kind of garb, uh, some right. kind of African garb, when in fact that appeared on the Drudge Report with some thinly veiled and never substantiated uh, sense that it was sourced from the Clinton campaign. Stuff like that. Well, I mean, nobody's ever going to question you about that at a rally. And probably people, you know, if you're going negative on Clinton at a Republican debate, you can say all kinds of things and uh, about Clinton and all you'll right. get are, are other heads on the stage nodding. There's just a way in which... Uh, you know, a presidential debate has a kind of gravitas and status uh, and, and, a, and a different kind of focus and a different kind of audience. That, and last night it did seem, as you're saying, as though he just kind of thought he was in one of his much more familiar environments. Yeah, exactly. And and I but I mean, again, I think that the reason that he did that is because he finally felt free to do it. I mean, look, you know, this new poll that just came out, Donald Trump finally actually has pollsters working for him. I'm almost certain that he knows uh, that the, the hot mic tape was a complete disaster for him, that that he's he is at best a long shot, if not totally out of the running at this point. Uh, you know, I mean, this is only one poll. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. You know, I, I have to add the usual qualifiers, but he's in a really bad spot. He was in a bad spot before the hot mic tape. And not only made it worse, uh, and I think that part of the reason that we saw him behave the way he did last night is, you know, him saying to hell with it. And, you know, he clearly doesn't like Hillary Clinton on a personal level uh, and wants to, uh, you know, do whatever he can to be aggressive toward her. And I just, you know, from from the standpoint of a debate itself, it was not something we're used to saying. But then he also, you know, said things like, if I were president, you would be in jail, which has alarmed a lot of folks for totally understandable reasons. Uh, and just, you know, I, I, it's the sort of thing that one wouldn't normally need to think you have to say doesn't really have a place in our politics because no one would have ever done it before. But that's Donald Trump. Well, uh, yeah, and I feel as though we're all struggling to understand which things are pivotal and which things are kind of de rigueur. And and so I have to say that when the hot mic thing started on late Friday, I didn't get it at first. I mean, I've listened to him talking on the Howard Stern show about how he would he wished that he could have, quote, nailed, unquote, Princess Diana. And this conversation took place shortly after Princess Diana's death. You know, right. I feel like if you're if, if you've already talked on on the on satellite radio or terrestrial, if that's when what, what Howard was at that point about having sex with, you know, uh, a really famous 
person who's being tragically mourned by the rest of the world. If you can do that, you know, I mean, the, this other thing, I just, I don't know. I looked at it and I didn't get it. I initially didn't sort of see what its status was. Last night, and I'm, I think I may have the reverse problem. Last night when he started talking about how if elected president, he would get a special prosecutor. He right. would go after Hillary Clinton. And yeah, later, seconds later, as kind of a little, you know, tossed off, more casual version of this, he said, because you'd be in jail. Um, I just thought this is a very sharp turn. I've watched a lot of presidential debates in my life. Candidates do not threaten one another with imprisonment if they win. You know, I mean, it, it just I've just never seen anything like that. It, it struck me as an unbelievably dark and a little bit frightening moment. I don't know. I, I feel like this morning it's not <laughs> it's not leading every story. I, I'm clearly I heard this a little differently maybe than the whole world did. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that part of the, the challenge that we're facing broadly in this campaign is the fact that Donald Trump is so outside of the norms of what we expect from presidential politics uh, that he, you know, and so within the norms of what we expect from other entertainment, that it's sort of hard for people who don't spend a lot of time paying attention to presidential politics, God bless them, to 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 uh, understand why it is that people who do spend that much time are so baffled and or alarmed by the things that Donald Trump says and has said, right? I mean, him saying that jail thing, yeah, that's a great zinger, you know, and, and his team tried to play it off as a joke today, you know, it's a, you know, the sort of thing that, you know, a guy might say in, the, you know, the, you know, the penultimate episode of Survivor when he, you know, he, he wins his whatever the hell it is, right? Um, but it's not the sort of thing that you say in a presidential debate because the words have real ramifications. And, you know, one of the things I pointed out last night is that uh, for in every poll that the Post has done over the course of this year, more than half of the country has viewed Donald Trump as unqualified to be president of the United States. And the reason why they say that more than any other reason is because of his temperament. And I think that last night, if he needs to get people to think he's qualified and to do that, he needs to prove to them he has the temperament to be president. Comments like that, much less his whole aggressive in your face pointing at Hillary Clinton style. All of those things, I think, only made that problem worse. The the other moment that I, I think most people did agree was it wasn't un, maybe it wasn't unprecedented. Maybe it was. I, I can't tell anymore. But, you know, last night he did. You know, we, we used to talk about Sarah Palin going rogue as a running mate who who might say things that weren't even countenanced by uh, by the top of the ticket. John McCain last night it was kind of the reverse of that. You know, I mean, Mike Pence had said some things that seemed like pretty conventional wisdom about what U.S. policy towards the the Assad. Uh, and Putin access right. access has to be uh, and, and, and how we have to think about those things. And Trump said, uh, I haven't been talking to him about that and I don't agree. Right. <laughs> I've never heard anything like that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, that thing, it was interesting to me. That was actually the thing that people on Facebook and Twitter were most interested in, which sort of surprised me. I didn't know that everyone would be as sort of blown away by that as I was. I mean, Donald, let's just very quickly walk through Donald Trump's relationship with Mike Pence. At the outset, he is convinced to choose Mike Pence. At the last minute, tries to talk to other folks and see if he can dump Pence and pick someone who he actually wanted. Gets stuck with Pence, tries to play it off as though everything's hunky-dory. Over the course of the campaign, then, they're rarely seen together. They're rarely seen together at the announcement. Then after this, there are these rumors that Mike Pence is very unhappy with the hot mic tape and so on and so forth. And then at, on the debate stage itself, Donald Trump, you know, and Mike Pence does yeoman's work last week of defending essentially everything that Donald Trump has said to date, you know, with sort of a, you know, a gentle shake of the head. 
and then Donald Trump sells them out during the second presidential debate. I mean, it is it is very much in line with the relationship the two have shown over the course of the past uh, several months, but it's just baffling. And then, of course, this morning, Mike Pence is like, no, no, he just misunderstood, which is, you know, very Mike Pence as well. Uh, we're talking to Phil Bump, who writes about politics for The Fix at The Washington Post. So I, I, I feel as though for people in your position, people uh, who cover the campaign, that we're at a, a coverage juncture, too, in the sense that so much of what has driven the campaign so far has been essentially content created by Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump goes somewhere, he says something, he does something. You know, there's a lot of cameras there and a lot of people with notepads and tape recorders and they all write it down and then we all talk about it and think about it. And uh, and, and so but it seems as though right now, just to come back to the Paul Ryan thing, that Everything else is kind of the story right now that in some ways, you know, last night was maybe one of his last chances, if it, if it even was a chance for him to change the narrative a little bit to somehow or other take back some of what he lost uh, over the last week or two, you know, and, and that he didn't really succeed in doing that. And that so much of, you know, I don't know if I were covering this story and I could go anywhere I wanted to and had to go anywhere that I thought was important. I'm not sure I would follow Donald Trump around anymore. It seems like the story's moved somewhere else and that in many respects, the rest of the Republican Party, what they're going to do about this fly in their ointment is a bigger story than anything the fly does. I think that's true. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it is true that we are close to entering the post-Trump conversation. Um, but I think it's a disservice to move to that point before people vote, right? You know, I mean, he still is a major party candidate. Uh, there still are any number of things that could happen between now and November 8th, including, you know, massive tragedies. There could be some sort of, you know, huge terror attack. There are all sorts of things that could happen, you know, deus ex machina sort of stuff that, you know, has nothing to do with what the candidates themselves are doing. But, you know, this race is not over. And, you know, I think that it's important to, to continue to, push forward, you know, the way you normally would covering a presidential campaign. But that said, I also think it's important to do it within the context of Donald Trump is in a, an extremely bad position, is extremely likely to lose, barring some sort of uh, uh, major event. But I still think it is, uh, you know, it's important to the extent that Donald Trump and Mike Pence uh, outline any policy positions and say what it is that they, they want to do or stand for, you know, in part because... Donald Trump is ostensibly the head of the Republican Party at this point, right? And so as he is out there on the stump talking about what he wants to do, those are things for which the Republican Party then necessarily becomes accountable. Uh, and so I think it's important from that standpoint, too, what Donald Trump does over the next month may not do anything to change the results of the election, but it, also, it will very much inform how the Republican Party moves forward from November 9th on. Um, we're talking to Phil Bump. Uh, just one area I want to get into, and then I know you have to commit acts of journalism, so we'll, I'll let you go off and do this. But, um, you know, I mean, another thing that happened last night, which is pretty unprecedented, uh, was this almost kind of Mr. Burns from The Simpsons-like plan to, first of all, seat the accusers, the women who'd accused uh, Bill Clinton of various kinds of uh, sexual uh, affrontery. Uh, in, first of all, in the family, the Trump family box, I guess somebody from the Commission on Presidential Debates or somebody anyway told me you couldn't do that. But still, he's like they're sitting there in front of Dick Durbin. Uh, and, and I mean, obviously, we've seen people used as various kinds of window dressing at all kinds of major events in the past um, and actually covering maybe state races. I've even seen something almost akin to this where somebody's seated in a prominent place who's going to make somebody else uncomfortable. We also saw it in The Godfather where the guy's brother was brought back from Sicily to sit there during the congressional hearings right. and make the guy 
Guy Freeze. But I don't know. I mean, in terms of presidential debates, I mean, there's there are flat out rules and then there are mores. There are things that you either do or you don't do. And this felt like sort of going to a whole new place, maybe just out of desperation because of the hot mic tape. Yeah, no, I, I think it was, you know, I mean, it, it was it was interesting in part because the hot mic tape wasn't Clinton's fault. Right. Right, right. I mean, that was something that NBC dug up and The Washington Post got the scoop on it. Nothing to do with Hillary Clinton's campaign. And yet Hillary Clinton is who he lashed out against, uh, you know, and which I think reinforces your idea that it was desperation. One of the things that I think is good, I mean, the the Commission on Presidential Debates has gotten a lot of flack for a variety of reasons, a lot of them warranted. uh, But I think it is good that they do see themselves as standard barriers for decorum, right? And that they have a, a very set process that they go through. They have, you know, rules around what can and can't happen, which I think, you know, normally we have presidential campaigns and presidential candidates who, to the extent that they push the boundaries of decorum, don't push very hard. Uh, Donald Trump is unburdened by that, and I think that it is good that they stepped in simply because the story of the night should not be this weird confrontation between people who have accused Bill Clinton of sexual assault and Bill Clinton. Uh, It should be what's actually happening on the debate stage. Granted, Donald Trump would much rather have it be the former for a variety of reasons, uh, but I think it's good that it wasn't. All right. Well, uh, Phil Bumper, The Washington Post, it's always great to talk to you. I hope you're holding up okay. Um... Four more weeks. (laughs) I hope they have some kind of like employee assistance plan there at the Washington Post. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's called booze. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> All right. Well, um, have a bourbon and then get back out on the trail. Uh, we're going to oh, we're gonna take a break. But in just a second, first of all, thanks to Phil. And he's going to go off and commit acts of journalism. But because people are calling in here, you know, I'll try to on Mondays. We try to get a call or two on the air. Here's uh, Marianne in Durham. Hi, Marianne. You're on the air. Hi, Mr. McEnroe. Thank you for your show. Thank you for um letting me be part of it today. Um, I want to pick up on a comment that you just made a few minutes ago about maybe you were the only person who uh, sort of felt a chill when uh, Bill, excuse me, um, when Trump was talking about putting um, Hillary into jail and um, being able to get a a special prosecutor to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had many intellectual concerns, social concerns, understand the definition of a demagogue, but yesterday evening, when I heard what he said, I literally felt frightened. Mm-hmm. And um, without being dramatic, I think that if he does win the presidency, I think that um, we all would need to be much more involved in preserving our democracy than many of us has been or have been in a very long time. Uh, I would agree. I mean, one thing uh, I also thought last night, I thought back to 2009, when there were many people who wanted uh, newly elected President Barack Obama to do something about the Bush administration, the the feeling that war crimes had been committed, that the Constitution had been subverted, uh, that there were people who were prosecutable and needed to be prosecuted, maybe even to send a message to the rest of the world that, that yes, making uh, torture a part of sanctioned policy, holding people without charges, those were things that the U.S. didn't do wouldn't do and is now going to prosecute the people who did. And you know what? Barack Obama made a different decision. He just he weighed this out the way he always does stuff. And he decided that it would divide the country too much and that he wasn't going to do it. Uh, I'm sure being a constitutional scholar, he understood uh, whether or not it made sense uh, from the point of view of the Constitution to do it. But he made a different kind of calculation. He said and, and that calculation has been made many other times when presidents have said newly elected presidents, we have to put the past behind us. We have to start looking ahead 
had, we have to start uniting as a country. The, the rewards that we would reap from righting these wrongs or prosecuting somebody who did something bad uh, or who we think did something bad, are, they're, they're not worth the damage that we would do at the beginning of this new administration. And last night you heard the opposite of that. You heard somebody who basically declared unprecedentedly during his own campaign that his plan is to prosecute his political opponent if he gets the chance, if he gets the power. It's the opposite of what presidents-elect have always done. And, and I really did find it kind of astonishing. Well, you're much more eloquent and obviously know a little bit more about, much more about political history than I do. But thank you for bringing um, all that education forward to your listeners. And um, thank you for giving me a lesson in um, the democratic process. All right. Well, and, you're um, you're going to hate tomorrow's show. For your show. All right. Thank you. You're going to hate tomorrow's show. I'm just warning you right now. Tomorrow, we we made a decision. We do get a lot of pushback from Trump supporters, understandably, that who feel that this show is unsympathetic. I can't even say it with a straight face. Unsympathetic to Donald Trump. That's absolutely true. I regard Donald Trump as a civic emergency, not so much a political candidate, but as something that ought to make sirens go off. Um, But uh, tomorrow, uh, in in response to these complaints and also out of just pure curiosity, we are going to have only Trump supporters on. We booked a bunch of them. They are going to be treated, you know, respectfully, and they are going to be heard out. I'm going to set up a couple of ground rules, but I'm warning all of you right now that we are going to let them have their say. Uh, And maybe more than Donald Trump uh, let Hillary Clinton have her say last night. I'm going to try not to be an interrupting cow. Um, But uh, so that's going to be tomorrow. Right now we're going to take a little break. We're going to talk about a little bit more about the nature of debate. And also, since we're going to have a constitutional scholar with us, we might as well also talk about the the tiny little moment where the Supreme Court got discussed last night. All right. Last night uh, in St. Louis, we saw something that was at least called a debate. Just because you call something a debate doesn't mean it really is one. We want to talk about debates, um, uh, what they really are, uh, and whether or not uh, debates such as the one that happened last night uh, contribute anything to our understanding of a race or can even change a race. Uh, to do all that is da- with us is David Yaloff, uh, president, uh, professor. He's not president yet. I think we're working on that. Uh, professor and department head of political science at uh, UConn. Uh, and since he's also an expert on the Supreme Court. We'll also ask him about the tiny little moment last night where they attempted to talk about the Supreme Court. Um, so first of all, um, uh, David Yaloff, I have to say that I, I, it turns out that I have forgotten more things about debates than I actually remember until I read Jill Lepore's piece in The New Yorker. I had forgotten that there weren't any debates from 1960 to 1976, no televised presidential debates. <laughs> they did it in 1916, and they stopped for 16 years. Um, I'd forgotten that there was a, a, a primary debate in which, uh, a Democratic primary debate in which Phil Donahue just introduced the two candidates and then didn't say another word and just let them talk. Um, so maybe the first thing to say is when we say debate, we don't mean just one thing, right? I mean, there's a sort of an academic understanding of what a debate is, and then there's all this stuff that they do that they call a debate. Well, I think that's absolutely right, Colin. Uh, when we think about debates, we think about a clear, specific issue and the two sides kind of 
coming in after each other in a direct conflict on that issue. Frankly, these these last few debates have been more like debates than we're used to. I mean, we're used to basically getting the people together in a room and giving them a chance to give a bunch of short, unrelated speeches uh, in the same room. And uh, I think actually we're getting more of the traditional debate here than uh, we have in the past. Right. Uh, sometimes they are criticized. They criticized in the past in the way that you're talking about them is they're more joint campaign appearances than they are debates. I mean, yes, in the last few debates, people have talked. I mean, they've argued. I mean, they've for the most part argued about what kind of person the other person is. But I suppose that's closer to a debate than, you know, these hard pivots towards previously worked out policy positions. Well, that's right. And and I think the the other thing to understand, as you just said, is there were no debates between 1960 and 76. And even when we had debates, we didn't have this, uh, bicenten- uh, this bipartisan commission creating them. Everything was up for negotiation. I mean, even the final of the three Kennedy-Nixon debates, they were in different parts of the country. One was in Los Angeles and one was in New York. And in the 1980 debates, there was only one debate because Jimmy Carter refused to show up for the first one. So everything was kind of at stake or negotiable at the time. I, you know, one of the conventions that I'm starting to question uh, that has been built into the modern debate is the notion of the live audience. You know, it seems to me they're more trouble than they're worth. You have to spend a lot of time, if you're the moderator, shushing them uh, and telling them they can't laugh and applaud and make noise. Uh, meanwhile, you've now got candidates gaming the audience composition in a way that we talked about in the previous segment. Well, let's put somebody really scary in the front row. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you could make a strong case for going back to uh, an old style of televised debate in which there's nobody there but the people asking the questions and the people answering them. Well, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that that might actually be the way they go next time with the town hall debate. Assuming the town hall debate comes back, it's not as if nobody's in the room. Right. Uh, but certainly with the uh, – I mean, I think that the, the argument made, and I know this has been raised before, is that if you just have two people in the room and literally nobody else but the moderators and some cameramen, it has a very antiseptic feel. It's almost like you're filming a commercial. But to some extent, that is what you are. You're hoping to get the sound bites to come out on your side. Right. Also, antiseptic is usually used to prevent disease and infection from breaking out. So in this uh, in this context, maybe antiseptic is not such a bad thing. So, you know, one of the moments and this I'll sort of combine two things that we're talking about. Uh, you, you know a lot about debates. You also know about the Supreme Court. So one of the opportunities to have a really interesting conversation last night came when one of the uh, people in the, the town hall group uh, asked a question about, you know, who are you going to point to the Supreme Court? And and Clinton gave kind of a kind of an answer. You know, I mean, we could talk a little bit about that answer. Trump said something about Scalia and then pivoted off abruptly to something that was not at all responsive to the question. That might have been an interesting place for them to talk back and forth a little bit more about what their philosophies are. You know, it really would have been. And uh, I think to some extent, the reason Donald Trump is a uh uh, kind of submitted the names of 20 candidates that he would consider for the court. Of course, he's he would never be bound by that. There's no guarantee that it would actually be the limiting pool. But he did that so that he could just point to it and say, well, you already know where I stand. We don't know what she's going to do. Uh, but I, I, I'm glad you raised that. Uh, you know, a lot of people come up to me and say, you know, I, I'd like to just sit at home and, and, and avoid this entire election. But the Supreme Court is at stake. That's kind of the even if there's no legislation that comes out of anything because of filibustering and polarization, surely the U.S. Supreme Court will be influenced. And and they're right, it will be. So in the past, as you know, Colin, uh, you'll get about a minute and a half on the Supreme Court, and it usually just consists of a restatement that I'm pro-choice or pro-life. You had 
an opportunity last night to have a serious conversation about that, and it kind of just got whisked away. I was surprised, but but there may be a, an actual significant and substantive reason. I was surprised that Clinton didn't hit Citizens United harder. She talked she talked about issues that attend to the to, to the case of Citizens United, and she talked about you know wanting to get money out of politics. Uh, I can't remember how exactly she put it, but she didn't really t- say. I guess maybe it's, you know, she's enough of a conventional, traditional, old-style, non-Trumpian candidate. So maybe she wouldn't be comfortable saying, I'm going to abort, appoint Supreme Court justices until I get Citizens United overturned. Or, of course, you know, she does get a lot of money from, from corporate interests. Maybe she's, I don't know, it seemed, it seemed like a nice moment for her to say something about that case. Well, that last point is actually a very good one. The truth is she's spending a lot more money uh, from donors than uh, Donald Trump in, in this particular campaign. I mean, on that one point, narrow as it is, uh, uh, Donald Trump does have a point. And so from that standpoint, she is, I think, nervous, as Barack Obama was, to spend a lot of time complaining about a decision that the Democrats uh, weren't hurt by, maybe even arguably were helped by in the 2012 election. And she has spent far more money and will continue to spend far more money than Donald Trump on this election. So I think that she mentioned Citizens United because that's kind of the bogeyman. You know, Ronald Reagan had Miranda versus Arizona and Roe versus Wade, and the Democrats have Citizens United, and, and they've got to hammer at it. But, I mean, to, to some extent, I'm not sure she wants to get into a discussion about money in elections, per se, right now. Right. If Bernie Sanders had been up there last night, he would have talked a lot more about Citizens United. He'd still be talking about it the right other, now. The other thing she t- did talk about is the way the pipeline's clogged anyway, right? That, in fact, you've got, you know, a nominee who just can't be moved along the pipeline, Merrick Garland. And and that's something that we've almost lost sight of or forgotten about in all this, that even before things got as broken as they are right now rhetorically, we had a structural break in the way our democracy operates, which is that you you can't even get this to a confirmation hearing. Well, you're it's absolutely right. You know, the polls indicate that people are not worked up about the Merrick Garland nomination, certainly not as worked up as perhaps myself and yourself think they should be. You know, Dr. Akhil Amar down at Yale Law School and some others are predicting that we might actually see the end of the filibuster. And that's because uh, what's going to really stop the, uh, let's say Hillary Clinton wins the presidency and the Republicans manage to hang on barely to the Senate. They may take the position, you know what, we really think the next president should get to decide this, not, not you. And to some extent, if the filibuster is still there, they'll be able to you know, keep doing that. Uh, they, they can obviously do that even if the Democrats control things. So uh, I think we may be seeing actually the end of the filibuster in the next four years because of the polarization that's going on right now in the Senate. Uh, David Yeloff, last thing to talk about. I mean, uh, we watch these debates. Uh, we watch them as theater. We watch them for whatever reason because we don't dare miss them, I guess. But, you know, the question remains, do they cause elections to pivot? You know, we can point to things like 2012 where Barack Obama had a disastrously bad, by most accounts, first debate with Mitt Romney. Uh, the incumbent president right now is named Barack Obama. You know, Dan Quayle got just, you know, leveled by Lloyd Benson, uh, but he became vice president. So is there a case to be made, though, that, that debates really do matter and can change things? Well, there's several pieces of that. I think there is no case to be made that vice presidential debates matter. Uh, when we think about the great moments in vice presidential debates, like Benson and Quayle, the person who had the best of those moments generally did not end up vice president. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that could very well be the case here if you think Mike Pence beat Tim Kaine. Uh, I, I think the general uh, perception 
is that he did, but it doesn't really matter. That didn't change polls a lot. It's a lot harder question about the presidency. There is this perception, it's a narrative, that you can stop the bleeding with a good debate performance. But there's no evidence or research to support the notion that a debate has actually changed the face of a particular election. Uh, I know that uh, the reason Jimmy Carter was willing to get into finally that debate a week before the 1980 election with Ronald Reagan is because Ronald Reagan was surging and he wanted to stop it. And, uh, you know, that, that I think is the sense people have. But I, I'm really glad you brought up that first debate from 2012. I think every incumbent president does badly, it seems, in that first debate. Reagan did horribly against Mondale in the first debate in 84. You're letting this person who is not the president kind of stand up on the stage as your equal. These presidents are not used to that, and it, it, it is a kind of equalizing moment for many campaigns. Yeah. Uh, David Yaloff, a great talking to you as usual. Uh, we'll have you back very soon to talk about other weighty matters. I'd like that. Thanks, Colin. All right. So we're going to take a break in just a second here. Um, I do want to say also, I think the other thing that happens to incumbent presidents is, yeah, they're sort of not used to this kind of thing. <laughs> they're used to sort of sorting out various kinds of sycophantism that they deal with on a regular basis. All right. So um, what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a break. I have to thank everybody. I have to thank Betsy Kaplan. She put together today's show. Jonathan McPants is right on the board today. I don't know. Is Josh over there on phones or is anybody? I don't know. I don't know what I, I actually can't thank everybody because I don't know what everybody else is doing as usual. Uh, but thanks to everybody who did anything. The part of Bill Curry was played, of course, by uh, Martha Raddatz. Um, and we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with an audio essay by Jonathan McPants, our producer. And it's going to be fun. You're going to be having this sensation while you listen to this audio essay. And that sensation is you're going to be having fun. Let me tell you how this segment came to be. So I had decided quite a while ago, quite a while before the first presidential debate, that maybe it would be a great idea just to move the whole, whole Colin McEnroe show to Hofstra University on Long Island. We would do our show from the debate. So Katie Tularski uh, made some inquiries, found out how we would get credentials to go and do that. And then um, Jonathan McNichol, I forget what happened then. What Did I drop the ball? Was that the problem? <laughs> it, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I would say that you dropped the ball, yes. Um, some of us applied for our credentials. Some of us didn't. Some of us got credentialed. Some of us didn't. I was the didn't, so I just <laughs> forgot about it. I was under a lot of stress. I have a lot of reasons for this, but um, basically the deadline passed, and I had forgotten to get my credentials. So we kind of had to retrench a little bit. And, I mean, I have also thought, well, maybe this is good. I'm kind of needed back here, and I'm a stress ball anyway, and there's things that I can do here. But it, that didn't mean that Jonathan couldn't go to the debates. It just meant that maybe we would use him a little bit differently. <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> well, it's just that I, I think it's important to note that of all the people who could possibly go, I'm maybe the one who makes the least amount of sense here. I'm like the least a political reporter of everybody involved. I'm like the least a grown-up of everyone involved. I'm the guy who does the shows about, you know, poop and penises. And there I was at the debate by myself. 
All of which actually makes you supremely qualified to be the one person covering the debate, right? This is not a particularly grown-up event. I mean, the thing that happened on the screen was hardly a grown-up event. And the other thing that I knew from previous debates was that where you would be, the spin room or spin alley, whatever you want to call it, the place where the media sets up, it's it's not even really heavily connected to the debate in some ways. Right. This is the first thing that surprised most of us here. The building that the press uses is called the Media Filing Center. At Hofstra, they repurposed the David S. Mack Physical Education Center as the Media Filing Center. Picture a big college gymnasium, the sort of room that can be arranged to have three or four basketball courts in it at once, the sort of room that a mid-sized convention of some sort might use. For the press, they set the room up with row upon row of tables, dozens of rows, each with seats for dozens of reporters and correspondents and hosts and analysts. Literally more than a thousand members of the international political press, all in one room, plus me. To my left were some Asian journalists filing a report of some sort, I think, by Facebook Live. To my right was NPR's national team. Behind me, some of the time, was Chris Matthews. He is, as you might guess, incredibly loud. In front of me were some European press cutting video together on their laptops. Also in front of me, bolted to my table, less than a yard from my face at all times, was a big television screen. Had to be easily 50 inches. TVs are a predominant feature of the Media Filing Center. From the back of the room, there are 40 or 45 TVs in your line of sight at all times. Because, and this is what Colin was saying, this isn't where the debate happens. Very close to none of the press goes to the debate. Very close to none of the press that goes to the debate to cover the debate is ever in the same building as the actual debate. We all just watched it on TV just like you did at home. Good evening from Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York. I'm Lester Holt, anchor of NBC Nightly News. I want to welcome you. To I talked to some of the NPR folks I was sitting with about the point of that, the value of traipsing all the way to Long Island, of navigating the closed roads and altered traffic patterns around the debate site, of lugging all your equipment through Secret Service security checkpoints to be metal detected and German Shepherd sniffed, all just to sit in a room with other reporters and watch the debate on TV. The first answer, Datelines. Clinton campaign, they are both at the debate site, Hofstra University in Hempstead. NPR's Mara Liason is at Hofstra University in New York's Long Island where the debate will take place. But there's another answer, too, the spin room. At one end of the filing center, they set up an area where surrogates for each of the campaigns come out and, you know, spin. Basically, they say whatever they have to to make their candidate look good. And to me, you have to question the value of that, too, don't you? I mean, when Congressman Adam Schiff, a Democrat from California's 28th district, comes out after the debate to talk to the press, and there's a woman standing next to him holding a tall, three-sided Toblerone-looking sign with his name on it, and the sign is blue, and his name is in the official Hillary for America font, is there really any question what Representative Schiff is going to think about Hillary Clinton's debate performance? Her performance uh, was really uh, extraordinary. I think she had a tremendous command of the issues. I saw Mike Pesca there after the debate, running around like I was, in the spin area, trying to get interesting quotes, and I talked to him about the whole thing afterwards. I covered sports for a lot of years, and after every game, there'd be a press conference, and you could go into the locker room, and it's not that much different. Mike hosts the Slate podcast, The Gist, and I think that's kind of a perfect analogy, right? It's like Crash teaching Nuke Lelouch the art of the post-game interview in Bull Durham. You're going to have to learn your cliches. You're going to have to study them. You're going to have to know them. They're your friends. Write this down. we got to play them one day at a time. Got to play 
pretty boring. Of course it's boring. That's the point. Write it down. It's important. It's important. Ready? And I think, you know, I think he did very well. So. I thought Hillary Clinton did a very good job of talking very clearly about, you know, the struggles families are facing, the struggles of our small businesses. So you know, That was, was Boris Epstein spinning for Donald Trump and then David Pluff spinning for Hillary Clinton. And that's what a lot of the spinning sounds like. Occasionally there were interesting bits, interesting insights from people you might think of as experts in certain areas. Occasionally there were slightly more forthright-sounding answers. Does he have a solid notion of it? Most of us in government don't have solid notions of it. This is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg spinning for Donald Trump, talking about Trump's grasp of nuclear armament issues. We understand it, but if you start getting in and you start talking about how many MIRVs are on a Trident II missile and the, the impact of that on and on and on, that's a, that's a whole strategy into itself. What you've got to have, I believe, is the common sense to rely on experts to give you that, that information. And second, have the common sense to know what, what lines can you cross and not cross. So do I think he has it now? No, but nobody else does when they come to government. He's been a business. But I don't know. It mostly seemed like a lot of puppies chasing their own tails to me. But I figured Mike Pesca, who's been covering politics in various capacities for years, who's been to a bunch of presidential debates, could tell me how I'm wrong-headed about this, how I'm an idiot about this. Well, I don't know if you're an idiot. It also depends on what you want to get out of it. They're on message, they're spinning, but you still get some good quotes and you still get some, you know, insight if you know where to ask and what to discount. So I think the fact that they call it the spin room maybe leads some people to believe, oh, there's nothing worthwhile here. Everything in a campaign is the spin room. What does spinning mean? Presenting the candidate, your candidate's uh, policies, your candidate's performance in the best light, not the most honest light, the best light. So it's exactly the same as every other campaign appearance, except this is the one they call the spin room. There's another factor here, too, though. I think we can all agree that my virgin debate-covering experience came in what is a strange year in American politics, right? Donald Trump's campaign is doing things a little bit differently from what we're maybe used to, right? When Mike's covered debates in the past, the people the campaigns would put forward as surrogates would be... Uh, people with real credentials who've been in government, or at least important people who you'd want to speak for your campaign... But when you have these people who are so far down the political food chain, I mean, these are who Donald Trump's advisors are. People like former contestants from The Apprentice, for instance. Amarosa was terrible at spinning. There are so many more important issues that people are concerned about that we're not talking about. So as much as I'd like to continue to talk about birther, the good thing is that my boss has put it to bed and we're moving on. And she would have this conversation with me that no reasonable person would say, wow, that's a real conversation. You would just say, oh my God, what's wrong with this person? Or people like Bruce Lavelle. Oh, he was terrible. He had no knowledge. I think Donald Trump did a great job, beginning, the middle, and to the end. He shows strong energy. He shows great leadership. He, strong, he shows strength. Lavelle is executive director of an organization called the National Diversity Coalition for Trump. This is him doing his own version of nuclear weapons. You know, not only to the American people, but the nation. The nation you know, the world needs someone from the United States to step up. And all of our, our allies across the country, Israel... Japan, all our countries need to have... A lot of times these people are so non-confident in their own uh, knowledge of the world and are so out of their depth, they just go to the talking points and it's kind of sad. It's worthless, right? That was kind of my experience, yeah. Except for one part of my trip to Hofstra. 
Earlier in the day, before the debate, I left the secure area to just kind of walk around on the campus to find some people I could maybe relate to more directly. Can I bug you guys for a minute for public radio? Public radio, for sure. You guys go to Hofstra? Yep. How old are you? I am 18. 20 years younger than me. Totally more my speed. This is the first election most of these kids can vote in, and they couldn't have been more excited to have the whole thing come right to their campus. Oh, it's awesome. Oh, it's, it's really cool. It is the coolest. I'm very passionate about politics, and since this is the first time I can vote, I'm doing everything that I can to be politically active, because it's my right as a citizen to do that. But at the same time, they didn't all take the whole thing so seriously. I saw a D's Nuts 2016 hat. I saw a Trump killed Harambe shirt. I saw signs that read, Trump eats farts, Han shot first, and Seinfeld Costanza 2016, a campaign about nothing. I talked to Trump supporters. Trump's policies, in a lot of people's eyes, are good, but they're not going to vote for him because they think he's a bigot because the media says that. I talked to Clinton supporters. I want to hear exactly what their policies are going to be, especially Clinton, because a lot of her stuff has just been tur- like twist and turned by Donald Trump and what he's saying. Sometimes I talk to both at once. So who are you going to vote for? Well, Hillary Clinton. Who are you going to vote for? Donald Trump. That's cool. So you guys are hanging out together? We are bipartisan friends. Do you get into fights about this? Um, No, I think that... People's political views, like, you shouldn't judge someone on their political views. I'm not the kind of person that, I'm not here to try to change her views. Like, nothing she says is going to change my views, and I'm not going to say anything to change hers. So I think it's pointless to fight about stuff like that. Like, just love each other. (laughs) And I talked to one guy with a different point of view, a guy carrying a placard that read simply... Everyone sucks, 2016. Well, I mean, everyone sucks, uh, 2016. What more is to be said? We have Donald Trump, who's absolutely insane. We have Hillary Clinton, who cannot be honest. We have very clear parallels between Hillary Clinton and her husband. We have very clear parallels between Donald Trump and just most ridiculous people that you would ever meet. Why would you vote for either? Are you going to vote? Yes, I am. Who are you going to vote for? It really, it really depends on who I want to write in when I walk up there because it's not going to be either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. So when you see coverage of last night's debate today, when you hear a journalist who's reporting from the debate site at Washington University in St. Louis, when you read quotes from Boris Epstein and David Plouffe, think of this semi-ridiculous scene, this giant college gymnasium, TVs in every direction, and this whole pack of puppies spinning, spinning, just trying to catch that tail. And think of the surrounding campus, all these kids excited just to vote, just to wear their Hillary hats or their Trump t-shirts, or just to hold up their Harambe 2016 signs. For The Colin McEnroe Show, I'm Jonathan McNichol.